0: bless you Don. (laughs) your checks in the mail Uh, but um, it's wonderful to have you all here this morning and um, we are continuing with our series through mark and it's called the the Jesus movement and we're on this passage now which is uh part of a series of passages, either five or six, depending on when you would start it. And they're passages where people come and ask Jesus a question, and the question kind of defines what this interaction is all about, and Jesus' response begins to give us insight into, Miles, can you, I have a lot of echo today. Hello. It's my deep voice today. Don't worry, it will come. But um, the, the passage kind of defines you know, what, it, what it's about and Jesus' response highlights something about him and about the kingdom. And uh, so we're in the story with Levi. Levi's a tax collector. Levi, just in case you miss this, Levi is actually Matthew. Um, so the person who writes the gospel of Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, uh, Matthew is Levi in uh, the story. So he's one of the disciples. He's not just one of the disciples. He's, one, he's the disciple who writes the longest uh, gospel. I mean, he's quite a big deal, you know, and uh, this is Jesus' uh, calling of Levi or Matthew, the tax collector. And, um, but before we get into that, we're going to look at a few things. But the first is the question. The question the Pharisees asked is, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So last week, we said that the question that was asked is, is how does Jesus essentially have authority to forgive sins? And, um, and, and he goes through that whole interaction with the paralytic that gets healed. Um, But this time, the question is about why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? And uh, in those days, if you were a religious person, this seems like quite an obvious question to ask. And essentially, the question is asking, why would you hang out with them? Like Jesus, why would you be hanging out with one of those people? And... uh, transfer it into 21st century now and uh, you could substitute the them with whoever you think are the people that probably you as a Christian should not be associating with. So the question is why are you associating with them or the question if you go a little bit deeper actually is are you one of them? That's part of the question that is being asked here. Jesus are you a sinner? Remember, at some point in the gospel, they say, hey, you know, John the Baptist was out in the desert eating locusts and honey, but Jesus is a drunkard and a glutton. Like, they, like part of the accusation of Jesus comes from who he hangs out with. So the question is, at one point, asking, like, Jesus, why are you hanging out with these people? But at the same point, it's a question of, Jesus, are you one of these people? Um, which is the fear that sometimes people have, you know, like who you hang out. What is that guy Jim Rohn who says uh, you are the average of the five people you hang out the most with? You know, like the the question at some point is is like, are you becoming like the people that you hang out with? Jesus, are you becoming a sinner? Is part of the the question. So why is Jesus? hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And that's part of the question that we want to answer today. Why is Jesus doing this? And this question highlights something of Jesus' mission. Why has Jesus come? What has he come to do? It highlights some of Jesus' mission, which we're gonna look at. But before we do that, we have to look at these two groups of people, tax collectors and Pharisees, because they are the two opposites Here we've got the tax collectors that Jesus calls Matthew a tax collector, he's called them, he's hanging out with them, he's having a party with them, you know, etc. etc. And then you've got Pharisees, the people going, Jesus, why are you doing that? So we're going to look at um, each in turn and then hopefully land with how does this kind of apply to us and find meaning today. So the first is tax collectors, now, tax collectors. Are not very loved people. And there's a reason why tax collectors are are not loved. Like, so the Romans come and they conquer Israel. They conquer the Jewish people. And uh, part of the way that they rule is now these people owe Rome taxes. But um, they're clever in the way that they get their taxes, they don't have a SARS system, Uh, what they do is they put out areas to auction. So they go into an area, this uh, may be there, some part of Galilee, wherever Jesus is, Capernaum, at this kind of point, they go to this area, and they go to tender you know, classic South African term. They go to tender and they say, okay, who is going to buy this area from us for the highest amount? And a, and a bunch of locals will get, you know, start going through the auctioning process and say, hey, you know what? We think we can, you know, from Glenwood, we think we can gather 500,000 rands worth of taxes this year. The other guy will be like, mm, I can do five fifty. Another person will be, I can do 600. I can gather 600,000 rands worth of taxes from this area. And they start bidding, and eventually the guys will go, you've got it. Sold, give us the 600,000 rand. They would have to give it up front. And then their job for the next year is to recoup that money in taxes, they're given authority by buying the area, they're given authority by the Roman Empire, they're not only given authority, they're given Roman legions, so Roman policemen essentially, to go out and now begin to collect taxes. So essentially what they are doing is they're auctioning off their own people. They're auctioning off their own people, for this tax amount, and then the Romans don't care how much they, they gather, they only want that upfront amount. So say it's the 600,000 Rand for Glenwood, they only want the upfront amount of taxes, they don't care whether Levi is gonna gather a million Rand in taxes that year, they don't care. They don't care how corrupt the system is, they only care that they get that upfront amount so that the taxes come straight in immediately, and then for the next year, Levi could do whatever he wanted. So this was, a, this was a corrupt job. And it was a very profitable job in the empire. It was very profitable because, like I said, he could collect a million rands worth of taxes, and the, you know, the Romans weren't gonna do anything about it. He could go to his people and demand as much as he wanted And during this kind of era, many, as history tells us, many Jewish people lost land because of the taxes that their own people would impose upon them. They couldn't afford to pay it, so they ended up losing their own properties. They lost so much wealth, was drained out of these groups of people by their own people selling them off to the Romans. It's quite a hectic job. Now, if you can imagine, you're a normal person, like, just working, trying to survive, and your neighbor becomes a tax collector. They basically, like, you hate that guy. He's the worst person. Like, and he's the worst, not only because he's, like, associated himself with your oppressive empire that's taken over you. You're the worst, not only because he's associated, but because he is using you to build his own wealth in that association. So, now you can understand a little bit of why people don't like tax collectors. You probably, I mean, we don't like SARS on a good day, and SARS isn't quite doing the same thing uh, as Levi would do. Um, But these are the tax collectors. They are people that have, people, they are Jewish people. They're not Romans. They're Jewish people. One of your neighbors, essentially, that has sold you out for their own gain by associating themselves with the oppressive Roman Empire. Let's uh, jump on to the Pharisees quickly. Uh, so, now Pharisees get a bad rap, especially uh, in the in the last uh, however many hundred years. As we talk more about grace, the the Pharisees get a bad rap. They're always seen as like the religious bad guys. So even in this story, probably as you read this story, you're probably reading this story like this. Oh shame! Those poor tax collectors and sinners. Look at those evil religious Pharisees. They're always so grumpy, you know. Like ah, oh, they always like judging everyone, and like we kind of read the story that the Pharisees are the bad guys, and uh, and you feel sorry for Levi, you know, like yeah. You know, of course Jesus is going to eat with them. Who would want to eat with the Pharisees anyway? Like, they're just grumpy. Like, what do they eat anyway? Probably boring. And uh, they're definitely not having wine at the meal. They're only having water, probably. Like, we, I mean, you think of these guys as the bad guys. And they do get a bad rap. And for good reason, sometimes they get a bad rap. But in that day, Pharisees, you must understand, Pharisees are, in many ways, they religious zealots. They are passionate religious people. The Pharisees believed that there was a spiritual revival that was happening in Israel, and they were like at the forefront of this spiritual revival and uh, and they are the people that are seeking to see the renewal of Israel that's going to result in essentially the breakaway of Israel from the Roman Empire, so they believe in the prophet the prophecies of Scripture that God's people are going to be renewed. Uh, They are part of that renewal process, they believe, by emphasizing the Torah and the law and really fighting for this religious zeal in Israel because that is the way that they are going to overthrow the the. Roman Empire, a spiritual awakening, came, coming through a renewed vigor towards God's Torah, which is gonna result in Israel's independence. So in many ways, these guys are your political freedom fighters on a spiritual front. So they, now if just picture that kind of person who believes God is awakening Israel to their freedom and Levi, the person that's sold them out. Like, those guys are enemies to each other. In many ways in this story, the Pharisees are the good guys and the Levi is the bad guys, so, if, uh, if we can think of South African history in some ways, which is always a difficult thing, but if you think of South African history, if you could imagine at some point something like this. You have the freedom fighters fighting for South African freedom, for the freedom against the exploitation of black people during apartheid. And then you've got these guys that are aligned with the Nationalist Party, that are essentially like nationalist party policemen, if you could imagine that, in the townships, oppressing their own people. That is Levi. is that person. And the ANC freedom fighters are the Pharisees at that point. Like, this is the kind of political environment that is going on in this story so now you've got Jesus Jesus is making waves in the community and all of a sudden he's eating with Levi you must be like what is going on Jesus can't be the Messiah there's no way he can be the Messiah there's no way that Jesus can be the one who's going to come and liberate God's people no way look who he is eating does he not even know how bad the people are That he's eating with. This is a very politically charged story. It's a politically charged story between the two polar opposite groups of people. And Jesus finding himself having a meal with the very group of people that you could not imagine the one who's come to liberate God's people. You know that he would be hanging out with. It's a wild story. It's a wild story. It's not just a story about a few guys that maybe aren't that liked, um, and a few guys that are uptight, and Jesus choosing the fun side. It's not that story. It's a story that's charged with political tension around Israel at that moment. Remembering that even his disciples We're hoping, part of what happens around the story is his disciples are hoping that as Jesus being the Messiah, he's not going to come and die. He's going to come and overthrow the Romans. So even his disciples hanging out with Jesus amongst his tax collectors are probably going, what is going on? I bet you some of them are like, Pharisees have a good point here. Like, we don't know why we are here. Maybe some of us disciples were like on the side of the room. Like we don't know. Like being like, mm, you know, we're going to eat in our own little group because, you know, we don't want to be seen with this group of people. It is a wild narrative. But what this narrative begins to tell us is it tells us something about Jesus' mission. And it tells us something about how he's going to accomplish change. So one of the interesting things here is we called this series the Jesus Movement. And what we begin to see is that the Jesus Movement is gaining steam. It's gathering, we've seen that with the healings. We've seen, you know, With the paralytic, the house was so full that they couldn't get in, so they stopped breaking the roof to come through the roof. So the the Jesus movement is gathering steam. But you could understand the Jesus movement gathering steam when it's around miracles, when it's around healing, when it's around people getting healed. I mean, that's wild. Like to see someone who is paralyzed get up and walk. I don't know about you, but like if I saw that, like, that is wild, that's going on TikTok stuff. Like, you know, that is just absolutely crazy. You're telling everyone what you have just seen. But what's interesting about this story is this story's different because it doesn't involve a miracle. In fact, it involves a bunch of undesirable Jewish people who are hated by their community telling each other to come and have dinner with Jesus. It's the most unlikely full dinner party. I don't know if you could imagine right now the person in your community, someone you know, someone around Durban or whoever comes to mind, that you think would be the most unlikeliest person to have dinner with Jesus, to even want to have dinner with Jesus. Now think about that person, and Jesus says, I'm coming to your house for dinner, and they being like, stop, wait, you're coming to on the phone, phoning everyone. And everyone coming. Like this is the part that's so mind blowing. Like Jesus saying, I'm coming to your house for dinner. And he's like, I'm phoning all my mates. And they all being like, you've got Jesus over. We're in, we're there. Jesus is coming, done. All our plans are out the window. I mean this, it says that there are many. What Mark is trying to tell us is like there is a massive crowd of tax collectors, and now these tax collectors would have had to have traveled, because like I said, tax collectors would auction out an area. So they were responsible for an area. So the fact that there's many tax collectors, they've come from all the different areas that they represent. They've come to Levi's house to hear Jesus. They haven't come to see a a healing, a miracle. They hasn't come for any promises of that stuff. Levi has invited Jesus for dinner and he's invited all their mates and their mates have stopped what they're doing and they've come to be with Jesus. What we see is that Jesus' movements is gathering steam amongst the most unlikely of people. It makes me wonder, even as we exist here in Klingwood and Durban, like, If the Jesus movement in our day had to gather steam, who would it attract? Who would come through our doors? Who would be the unlikely visitors that would come in and uh, be here? Who are the groups of people that when they come through the door, we sit on the other side of the hall because we're like, does Jamie not know? who those people are. Why is Jamie hanging out with, you know, like who, who are the people that would be the most unlikely of people to be part of church? This is what's happening. The Jesus movement is gathering steam amongst the unlikely group of people. The political Salats, the Salats of the Israel kingdom the ones who have sold their own people into Roman oppression. Jesus is beginning to gather steam. And uh, my hope is that even us here, who are the people that we need to reach? Need to come in. Who are the many that need to be here at Harbor City. So Jesus answers the question, and his answer highlights something about Jesus's mission. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus uses a an interesting illustration at this moment. He uses the illustration of a doctor. A doctor, you know, is someone who has sick people come to them, administers medicine, or you know, some. I mean, sorry, Graham, I'm butchering this definition of a doctor. Graham's crying there, going like, Jamie, please stop, please stop. But you know, a doctor is someone who who is like Carries a given authority in our communities because they understand uh, sickness and how to and health and how to make sick people healthy. And Jesus uses this illustration to highlight something, not about health and sickness per se, but about righteousness and unrighteousness. So he says, It, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He's a like, Doctors help sick people get healthy. And so I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. What is Jesus saying? He's essentially saying this that part of his purpose is to help unrighteous people become righteous. He is the doctor of righteousness in some ways. That his call is to go not to the healthy, but to the sick. His call is to enter into the spaces in which there is unrighteousness and help unrighteousness move towards righteousness. Jesus is saying this is his mission. As Jesus says in Luke 19, he says, this is the reason I've come, to seek and to save those who are lost. I've not come for the righteous. I've come for the unrighteous. I've come as a doctor goes to the sick, so I go to the broken, the needy, the unrighteous, to see them come into God's righteousness. Jesus says this, and he's saying this, both to justify why he's with tax collectors and sinners. But he's also taking a dig at the, at the Pharisees at this point. He's taking a little bit of a dig. And his dig essentially goes like this. I've come not for the righteous, but the unrighteous. What he's really saying is I've come for everyone. Everyone is unrighteous and needs to come into righteousness. But he's taking a dig at the Pharisees. He's saying, guys, you think you're so good that you're going to miss me completely. I haven't come for those who think they are righteous. I've come for those who understand that they need. Christ to be righteous. Just in the same way that someone who can be deeply sick can deny it and deny it and deny it and never go to a doctor, so in the same way, Jesus is highlighting something to the Pharisees. He's highlighting that they could be deeply sick, but because they think they're righteous, they will never come to Jesus. But Jesus is highlighting those who, in one sense, recognize their need for righteousness. The sinners, the tax collectors, they know. They're broken by their own community. They're outcasts. They are like the leper that we spoke about a couple weeks ago. They are like the leper who desperately wants to come in, be invited back into the community. But because of this place that they found them in, they are outcasts. They recognize their need. And Jesus' invitation brings them in. One of the interesting things is this. What the Pharisees deeply wanted is they deeply wanted tax collectors to give up their day job, essentially. They deeply wanted their own people to give up their alignments with the Roman Empire. So what they would have wanted the ultimate outcome of this story to be was that all the tax collectors of the day would have just quit their job, thrown over their tables, decided we're not working for Rome anymore, we're over this. Like they would have wanted that. They were the the zealots, as I said, of the day, hoping that through this spiritual awakening, this new awakening of their Jewish identity, that they would have... you know, thrown off the Roman oppression. What's interesting is Jesus achieves what they want through one, through one command, essentially, through one statement, through Jesus going to, the, to Levi and saying, follow me. The Pharisees, through all their whatever, couldn't get the tax collectors to stop their job. Jesus does the unexpected. Follow me. Or as he says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. Zacchaeus attacks here. I'm coming to your house for dinner. It's It's a request of Jesus, an invitation of Jesus into their home that causes the very outcome the Pharisees would have hoped for to happen, but in a way that they could not Understand. How can Jesus get someone to quit their day job by saying, Follow me? It's like. Poof. And you must understand this is a big deal for the Pharisees. They hate it by their community. To give up being a tax collector is a huge thing for them. It's a massive thing for them. They don't know whether they would be able to go into a job uh, within their normal kind of society. They don't know because everyone hates them. Everyone's filled with like the residual memory of their corruption everyone's filled with the pain of their betrayal. So they, when they quit their job of being a tax collector, as Matthew does, he's quitting his job with no certainty of acceptance back into the community, with no certainty of income. When Zacchaeus in Luke gives away his money and he starts repaying back, he gives it away with no certainty that he's ever gonna be able to get an income again. So the change that happens here is so radical. Jesus' call to Levi to follow him results in such a radical act of obedience. Levi gives up his alliance with Rome. He gives up all the Roman legions that he would have had protecting him. He gives up his form of income. He gives that all up to come to Jesus with absolutely no certainty of what his future would look like. There's a radical change that happens at this point. Levi quits his day job. Tax collector quits his day job with zero certainty of the future to follow this man that people are wondering whether he is becoming a sinner. But what the, one of the things this story tells us is to, tells us about how people change. And I wanna just close with like the three A's of change. I've done, you know, if you guys were here two weeks ago and you heard Peter preaching, he had like nine eyes. I was like, yo, alliteration. How's that guy, nine eyes. I was like, how did he even find nine eyes in the dictionary? (laughs) Like, so I was like, yo, I need to up my game. So now I've got the three A's of change. I couldn't get to nine, guys. But I've got the three A's of change, and hopefully these three A's will, will help us. Um, but it's the three A's of change. It's, a, it's three basic things that happens to Levi that causes him to radically change his life. He has this guy, an outcast from his own people. He sold himself out to the Romans. He is as corrupt as they come. He is, in those terms. Amongst those group of people, he's the worst kind of person. It is that person who is so ideologically different to you that you can't stand having a dinner with them. He's that person. You know, the funny thing is, you can have a dinner with someone who you know is a bit promiscuous. I don't know if you like. You can have a dinner with someone who you know is like a bit wild, living their life. But having a dinner with someone who is ideologically opposed to you, and you know it's going to come up in conversation. It's like the worst. Jesus is having dinner with the whole group of these ideologically opposed to everyone in Israel kind of people. And how does he bring about change? And this change happens through three ways, the three A's of change. The first is allegiance. Allegiance. Jesus' call, we've said this before in the start of, In chapter 1, Jesus' call, the call to repent, the call to follow Jesus is a change of allegiance. It's a change of authority in your life. When Jesus says, follow me, what is he saying to Levi? He's saying, change your allegiance from Rome being your authority. Change your allegiance from the religious system of Israel, in one sense, being your authority, change your allegiance to me being your authority. The call to follow Jesus is a call to submission to the authority of Christ. This is the first bit of change that happens for all Jesus's disciples it happens for Peter and Andrew it happens for James and John it happens for the other disciples which we'll see in chapter three being called it happens for every single one of us at some point if we come to Christ the first bit of change happens with a change of allegiance Jesus is calling us to himself and until we change who is our authority, whether it's ourselves, whether it's someone else, whether it's our religious system, our culture, our society, our ideology, whatever it is that we give ourselves an authority to, we're never gonna change until we change the authority in our lives. And the call of Jesus is to change our authority to Jesus. Jesus is saying to you, As he says to me every day, and to all of us every day, he is saying to us, Who has authority in your life? And he is the one who wants to have it all. Follow me. Levi, to change that authority, would have to give up everything. That's what he was doing. Inviting Jesus to his home was not just a great idea of like, let's try out Jesus. At that point, he's given up everything. He's given up his allegiance to Rome. He's given up his career. He's given up all of this, which he knows was the problem in his life. He's given it up to go and follow Christ. I'm not saying that we have to change our careers or, Maybe you do. I don't know. What is your career? (laughs) Maybe you do. Um, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is we need to change our source of authority. We need to change our allegiance. Who do you align yourself to? Ideologically? Politically? Maybe you just... Absolutely, completely worship yourself. You are the all-encompassing picture in your life. The call is to move away from that and to align ourselves to Jesus. But the call is more than just allegiance. The call of discipleship is the call of apprenticeship. To be a disciple, which is a word that we don't often use today, so it gets lost in translation in some sense, is the call to apprenticeship. It is the call to follow Jesus by imitating Jesus. You know what an apprentice does, an apprentice in a, you know, in a factory, in a tooling place being an apprentice plumber or carpenter or or whatever, what you are doing is you're going day to day to the job to learn from someone who is skilled or a master at that job. That's what an apprentice does. They spend time with someone who is a master at that job, at that task, learning from them, learning in the day-to-day activities of the job. They're learning to become a master at that thing. Jesus is calling his disciples to apprenticeship. They are learning to become like Jesus. The call to Matthew, as we've seen when we mentioned this earlier, same with with James and John, the same with uh, Peter and Andrew, is this call to become like Christ. It is this call to reshape and re not just align our lives, but reshape the actions of our lives so that our actions begin to look like the life of Jesus. It is aligning ourselves with Jesus as the authority in our lives, and it is reshaping our lives to begin to live like him. An apprentice is the day-to-day learning from the person who is the master, And part of the way that we change is through the day-to-day learning how to be like Jesus. Reading the scriptures, praying, living out what is said, seeking to obey the call of Jesus, to forgive others, to love neighbor, to share the gospel, to become like Christ. And then finally, the third change is association. The question that this starts with is a question of Jesus, who are you associating with? But essentially, how the story ends is not Jesus, who are you associating with? The way the story ends is who is associating themselves with Jesus. It starts not with Jesus, what community are you joining? The story is about Levi, what community are you joining? It is about this community of disciples, of followers, of people that have aligned themselves and apprenticed themselves to Jesus. We change by changing our authority through our allegiance to Jesus. We change by learning from the ways of Christ, but we change also through the community of God's people by associating ourselves with God's people. It is in this community that some of our deepest change will happen. It is in this community of people who are disciples, apprentices of Christ. It is by associating ourselves with the people that associate themselves with Christ in which some of the deepest work of change happens, both through our affections being stirred by the community, but also by our lives. Being challenged. I don't know, one of the hardest things of being part of a Christian community is at some point someone's going to say something you don't like. And at that point, you have two choices. One, you can leave the church and complain about how horrible Christians are, which happens a lot. Or at that point, you can ask yourself, is what they're saying true? And often, when we say things, because sometimes we say it out of frustration, and that's on us. But often when we say things to each other, about 75% of it is true, and 25% is just filled with our own fluff and pain and insecurities and all of that. But one of the ways that we change is when we go through a difficult moment in community it's to keep aligning ourselves with community. When someone says something that is really challenging to you, it's being able to say, Is that true and do I need a change? But it's more than that. Last night, there were a few of us that got together to celebrate Eugene and Natile's engagement. and um, And what amazes me is we're there at our home and quite a lot of setup to happen, but then people like Mike and Janita rock up early and they just start working, just start serving. You're like, why are they serving for Eugenia and Sile? What, Like, why are they doing this? You know, but they're not the only ones. Tabani rocks up. Kellerman, and Roan rock up. People like Vukile and Amanda who couldn't make it, drive all the way up to Pinetown to drop off food for the event people show Christ's love in community. We are changed not just by the hardness of community sometimes, but we are changed by the love of community at the same time. What happens with Levi is he's always an outcast, but he becomes a friend. He always lives with the hatred of his community shining upon him. But the invitation of Jesus all of a sudden changes community as a place of pain into community as a place of joy. The invitation of Jesus is an invitation from being an outcast into being a friend. And one of the ways that we change by not just aligning ourselves with Jesus, not just apprenticing ourselves with Jesus, but associating ourselves with his people is we change because all of a sudden the welcome of Christ to us becomes the love that we feel together in community. Can I pray? We'll close. Jesus, I thank you for Levi's story. I thank you for how you you welcomed in someone that no one believed could be welcomed in. You hung out with him. You gathered a crowd, formed a community. You called people to change. And I thank you for us here this morning that you draw us to yourself. You call us like you called Levi to come and follow you, to change our allegiance, to make you king in our lives. And as you do that, Lord, it changes everything. And I pray for all of us this morning that you would draw us to yourself again that we would hear your call. As we hear your call, we would lay down our lives. We would align our souls with you afresh. We would like Levi, with joy, welcome you into our world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.